shift part two. And last week we began our shift series talking about this idea that, that it's time for us to adopt a new mindset toward money, that, that it, you get this feeling from economists, you get this feeling from, uh, you know, the media, even here in Southwest Florida this season, you know, there's, there's kind of this, there's this feeling in the air that maybe, just maybe, things are getting better. And some of us are hopeful of that, some of us are starting to feel that, some of us are like, man, I'm not out of the woods yet, you know, whatever the case may be, here's, here's what we began talking about last week as we began this series, is that no matter where we find ourselves, the reality of the situation is... Things are going to get better. And when they do, and as they do, one of the biggest dangers I think that we face is, as we're thawing out, as we're waking up, you know, from this financial slumber we've been in, one of the biggest dangers we face is to simply retreat back to old mindsets that we had pre-recession, so to speak. Matter of fact, I actually heard someone say that recently. They said, "Uh, man, you know, I just wish this recession thing would be done And we could just go back to the way things were. But the reality of our time, I believe the reality of our day and age is that we will never be able to go back simply to the way things were. That those days are gone and we're waking up to a new financial reality. And in this new financial world that we're waking up to in our day and age today, we have to adopt a new mindset. Well, today in part two of our series, I want us to to look beyond the practicals. I want us to to drill down a layer deeper and and identify what I believe to be a, a shift that needs to take place in the heart of our money, a shift at the heart level, at the belief level of who we are. And here's the reason why. Because if all we do is talk about the practicals of our money, like we did last week, that, you know, if we, if we talk about, okay, live on a budget, don't spend more, you know, than you make, get out of dumb debt, cash is king, saving is this, and all of those things that we talked about last weekend. If, but if all we ever do is spend time in the practicals of our personal finances, here's what I, I think. I think what's going to happen is we'll never see the long-term change and we'll never experience long-term health in this area of our finances, like so many of us, every one of us, desire to experience. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I want us to drill down into the heart of our personal finances. If you have your Bible, turn with me real quick to the book of Luke, chapter 16. Luke 16. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. The verse will be on the screen. Uh, You can track with me there because Jesus actually, during his time on earth, his ministry here on earth, Jesus actually talked a lot, a lot about this area of personal finance in our life. And uh, in Luke 16, we pick up the ending of one of these teachings that Jesus has on personal finance. And at the end of, uh, of, the, of the teaching, Luke chapter 16, verse 10 is where we're going to start. Jesus drills down beyond just the practicals of our personal money or our personal finance. Here's what it says. Verse 10, let's read it together. Whoever can be trusted, Jesus said, with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And I want you to notice here for a second that Jesus is not talking about how little or how much money we have. That he goes way beyond just the surface of this thing. He's talking about trust. Can we be trusted? He he drills down to a deeper heart level. He says, whether you've got a lot or a little, whatever the case may be, there's a trust thing going on. Verse 11, he continues on. So if you've not been, here's the word, trustworthy 
and handling worldly wealth who will trust you with true riches. Verse 12, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See, here's what I want us to understand this weekend. At the heart of our money, at the heart of our money is a trust issue. And I think it it looks a couple of different ways. One, do we trust God? Like we talked a little bit about at the end of our our time together last weekend, you know, there's this, do we trust God in terms of inviting him into our, the, the area of our personal finance? But the second question is, can God trust us with what he's given us? Are we being found trustworthy? In other words, where is our heart in terms of our personal finance? Where are we at? Can we be trusted with what's given to us? My oldest son is playing Little League again this spring, and so my youngest son, my eight-year-old, comes with us to the ballpark, and occasionally, you know, he gets a little bored or, or hungry, whatever, at the ballpark. And, you know, so in dads, we've all, uh, moms too, we've probably all had this experience, you know, my eight-year-old comes up to me and goes, I want a snow cone, you know, and he's all sweating and playing with his friends, and he's like, I want a snow cone. Okay, so you look in your wallet, and all you have is a 20. And, you know, I'm like, okay, here's the deal. Listen, snow cones are $2, you better bring back 18. And he's like, okay, okay. And he grabs the 20, you know, runs off and what? Like three minutes later, comes flying back, you know, snow cone in one hand, wad of cash in the other and goes, Psh. what's the first thing we do? We count it, right? 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Okay, you can live, go. You know, like it's right. It's that feeling, isn't it? Of, hey, you got, I, I need to make sure, son, that you're trustworthy. It's, it's the same picture of a financial advisor. That Those of us with retirement funds and accounts, we entrust a financial advisor. We, we go to them and we say, hey, I'm trusting you to get me the greatest return on investment that we can possibly find for the money that I have. It's a trust relationship. And see, in the same way, it's as if God is looking at us, his people, saying, can I trust you. And here's the thing, when it comes to our money, God asking us, can he trust us, goes way beyond just the practicals. And that's why today, in part two of this shift series, we're, we're going beyond just the surface, and we're asking the question, what do we really believe about our money, our things, our stuff, all that we've been entrusted with? So that's what we're talking about today. God's asking us the question, whether we've been given $10,000 a year $100,000 a year, a million dollars a year, God asks all of us equally, whether we have a little or a lot, can I trust you? Are you trustworthy? And if we're going to be found trustworthy, especially in this new economy that we're waking up to in our world today, then we must have a shift that takes place in our heart. If you have your bulletin, I would love for you to open it all the way up. Inside left flap, you can follow along. There's a few fill in the blanks there because I want to talk about four shifts that need to take place in our heart concerning money, a shifting of our heart in four particular areas. What does this mean? Here's the first one. Number one, if you want to write this down, when we're talking about these shifts, I think it means a shift from compensation to calling. A shift from compensation to calling. When I was 17 years old, I had just uh, given my life to Christ a couple years before that, so I was still trying to figure, you know, the whole deal out. And uh, my buddy and I went to a, uh, a concert by a Christian rock band at the time called Big Tent Revival. 
and maybe some of you remember Big Tent Revival. Um, and so we, it was at this gymnasium, uh, you know, on a college campus, kind of in the bad part of town. And so, you know, I remember being 17, and we drove down to where this concert was. And I remember standing there four or five rows up in the bleachers of this gymnasium. And the, the lead singer of Big Tent Revival, which, by the way, happened neither in a big tent, nor was it kind of like old school revival, it was just the name of their band. Uh, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Don't worry about it. Um, others of us are like, dude, flashback. It's okay. Everybody's going to be okay. So anyway, so my buddy and I are sitting there, you know, four or five rows up. And right before the lead singer of Big Tent Revival went to sing one of their song, hit songs at the time called Two Sets of Joneses. He made this statement, and it's a statement that now for 19, almost 20 years of my life, I've never forgotten. He made the comment, he said, if you ask someone their occupation, they'll tell you how they pay their bills. If you ask someone their preoccupation, they'll tell you why they live their life. If you ask someone their occupation, they'll tell you how they pay their bills. But if you ask someone their preoccupation, they'll tell you why they live their life. And for nearly two decades now, I've never forgotten that statement that was made in that concert that night. Because see, there is a difference between our occupation, our compensation, if you will, and our preoccupation, our calling, why we live our life. Listen to this. A recent survey said that 87% of Americans don't know why there on earth. 87% of you and I, 87% of Americans, nearly nine out of 10 of us don't know what the purpose of life is. Don't know why, if there's a God, some creator being, why he would make us who we are, when we are, where we are, why we are. Nine out of 10 Americans don't understand or don't know their purpose in life. So watch this. Think logically for a second. Okay, if nine out of 10 Americans have this void, this vacuum in our hearts saying, I'm not real sure how I'm supposed to be. I'm not real sure why I'm here. I'm not real sure what the purpose of my life is. If nine out of 10 of us don't know what that is and have this vacuum, this void inside of us, then what are we supposed to live for? Will you live for the loudest philosophy that comes in and fills that void, which in our world is more. Live for more, more money, more things, more stuff equals more happiness. Is it any wonder that our world is in the state that it's in when nine out of 10 of us believe that living for more is the road to happiness? That it's all about more compensation, that that's just the end of our life. That's what our our destiny is. That's what our world is supposed to be about. And see, if we're going to thrive in this new world of money that we're living in and waking up to today, then I think we've got to search our hearts as well and ask the question, what do we believe? Do we believe that life is just all about compensation? It's all about as much as we can, get all you can, while you can, because you can? Is that the core belief in our heart? Or is there something greater going on? I love, I love looking across our church and seeing so many of you who get this, who understand that life is not just about mere compensation, 
but you've tapped into a greater calling. I love looking across our church, and I think of a couple right now who this weekend, who, who are in their occupation, are very well compensated. But this weekend, they are youth mentors, and every Wednesday night, if you came into this room, you would find hundreds of teenagers praising God and reaching out to Jesus, and you would find this couple working every Wednesday night in our Collide Student Ministry as youth mentors. You know why? Because they get it. They understand that life is more than just compensation, that life is not just about our occupation and how we pay our bills. Life is about a calling. I think of our Connection Group magazine and how we have over 100 Connection Groups that are so, so diverse, led by so many diverse leaders who understand exactly what I'm talking about. You get it, man. I think we've got divorce care groups. We've got peanut butter and jelly sandwich groups that we make those for homeless people. Like, why? Because they're compensated? No. Because they understand their preoccupation, their calling. I think of our serve teams downtown. So many of you, hundreds of you, who've caught the vision of our Be Orange campaign. And this year in 2012, you're building relationships with communities, with buildings, with with, uh, families and children and moms and dads, downtown in our communities we've adopted. Why? Because you're compensated? No, because you're called. Because you understand that the sum total of life is not just about how much we have, more and more and more. No. I think of a couple in our church right now who just a few years ago, when the economy was at its highest point, this couple was making a lot of money doing real estate and investing. And God has used this whole downturn to recapture their attention in a huge way. And they are now giving their lives to rescue teenage girls who are caught in the sex trafficking industry in Central America. Unbelievable. Now think about our hospitality teams. There's so many of you that, that strive to make Next Level Church the friendliest church in America. You're usher, you greet, you high-five high people. I like our coffee bar teams for crying out loud. Holy smokes. Okay, here are people who get up like at 4 a.m. to start brewing coffee for us. Enjoy your coffee. Somebody paid a great price, okay? We're just telling you. No, listen, why? Because they're compensated? No, because they understand calling. When you study the New Testament, you you find the Apostle Paul who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You know what he did as an occupation? He was a tent maker. I bet you no one in his world was like, man, you need a good tent? You go see Paul. That dude can make a good tent. Okay, listen, long after people forgot about his occupation, 2,000 years later, we still mine the words that he penned of life change in the New Testament. Why? Because the Apostle Paul understood that there is a difference between our compensation and our calling. And the question for us today is what do we believe at heart level about us? What do we believe about our money? Is it just about more and more and more? Or is there a greater purpose to why we live our life? The second shift, if you're taking notes, that I think we've got to make if we're going to drill down to the heart of our money is, is number two, is a shift from consumerism to contentment. 
there's a shift that needs to take place at the heart level from consumerism to contentment. I love this verse. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10 says this. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Okay, husbands, the modern translation for your wives is this. Whoever loves shoes never has shoes enough. Can I get a better amen? Come on. All right, ladies, here's your turn. Your modern translation for your husbands. Whoever loves tools and gadgets never has Home Depot cards enough. It's there. It's there. I'm telling you, that is the modern translation. Whoever loves money never has money enough. In other words, here's a fact of life. Our yearning will always exceed our earning. Won't it? Our yearning will always exceed our earning. Why? Why is it that we always want the newest model? Even if you got the newest model, like what? Why? Why is it? That we always want the bigger, better, brighter, shinier, faster, slower, whatever it is, newest mo- What is that about us? Well, for one, it's the American economy. Because <laughs> our American economy thrives on the fact that our wanter continues to want. Okay, <clears throat> true story. So, uh, a couple years ago, when the iPad 1 came out, uh, I did what a lot of people did, and that is freaked out, ran to my wife's office and went, this changes everything. This is going to change my life forever, I swear. Right, okay. I, I freaked a little bit because you guys know me. I don't get excited much, and, you know. <laughs> but I did that time, that day, that one time I did. And I remember uh, my wife and I, you know, looking at the iPad 1, it came out, the whole deal. And, and it, but she and I had a great conversation, several conversations about it, and we actually made the decision Um, that I wasn't going to get an iPad 1, that I would wait until the iPad 2s came out. First of all, just so they could refine it, and and I I do a lot of video stuff online, so, you know, I wanted one with a camera and all that. So we kind of, we just said, well, let's just wait for the iPad 2 to come out. But honestly, the bigger reason was because we decided that it would be a really good discipline for me. We decided... Matt doesn't need every new toy. It's not a toy. It's a business tool, honey. <laughs> Can I get a better amen, wives? Isn't that what they always say? That's what we always say. So, so and some of you tracked on my blog, I actually wrote a little bit of, of this in terms, honestly. I mean, my wife and I, financially, we're, we do, we're fine, you know, and, and so we, I could have bought one. I mean, that's, we have it. We could do that if we wanted to. I could have, but I didn't. I waited an entire year, an entire year year, going to conferences, and all of my pastor friends, all my friends, whip out their iPads, and I'm like, does anybody have a legal pad in my next level church pen? Click, click. (laughs) I was that guy, which is fine. I was totally fine with that. Fine. Fine. So anyway, so I did. I waited a year to get the iPad too. And honestly, their biggest reason why is just to practice contentment. It's okay. Guess what? We don't need every new toy and gadget and whatever. You know why? Because we live in a world that is driven by consumerism. And contentment is a lost art in our nation today. But listen, if we're going to thrive in this new economy that we are warming up to in our day today, 
then we must regain the art of contentment in our life. Here's why. Because in the Bible, contentment equals self-control. And self-control is not something that we Americans do very well. But if we're going to thrive in this new economy, then I believe we must, we must rediscover, or for some of us, discover for the first time the art of contentment. And some of us need to teach our kids. When was the last time you told your kids, you know what? We could, we're just not going to. You know why? Because we don't need to. We're going to wait six months. But mom, all my friends, ah! Yep. Here's what the Apostle Paul said about it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. Look at this. He said it this way. I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. He says right before this, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, I've learned to be content in whatever the circumstances. Here's a challenge for you, and I hope some of you will take me seriously on this. I hope. And if you do, go to our Next Level Church Facebook page, please. Make sure you go to our Next Level Church Facebook page and tell me all about it. Because we want to, like, I want to hear your story. Okay, ready? Here's the challenge that I think some of us need to take. Put yourself and your family on a spending freeze for the next 30 days. For 30 days, starting right now, this weekend, spending freeze. No new shoes, no new clothes, no new purses, no new toys or gadgets, no extras of any kind, no extra soda that you don't need or beer or whatever, whatever your deal is. No, no, no extras. Now, of course, here's the thing. Don't, don't take this so extreme that, you know, your kids, mom, I'm hungry. No, Pastor Matt said nothing. If Jesus can fast 40 days, so can you ungrateful kids. Okay, don't do that. Don't do that. And certainly don't blame it on me and Jesus. That's not, that's not, that's not going to help your kids' faith at all. Put yourself on a spending freeze. Here's why. For a couple of reasons. One, I hope, I hope some of you will so take me up on this. Here's why. First of all, because it'll, you'll, see, you'll get to see exactly how cheap, how frugal you can actually live. Which would be a, a good thing for a lot of us to find out. I have to have it. No, you don't. And secondly... To prove to yourself that you can do it. Because it's good practice in contentment. Because the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. See, if we're ever going to thrive in this new world of money that we're waking up to today, then we must adopt a mindset that goes way beyond consumerism of our culture and is a mindset, and is a heart belief of contentment. That's what God would want for us. That's what he lays out for us and provides for in his word. Here's a third shift that needs to take place, and that is number three, a shift from ownership to stewardship. In terms of a mentality, an ownership to stewardship. We have to see a shift there. In other words, how we view our money and our possessions. How do we view our money and our possessions? Who does, in other words, who does all that we have belong to? Because, see, we live in a world that is telling us that our stuff, our things, our money belongs to us. Does it? Because, see, I believe that when we study the pages of Scripture, what we discover is that you and I are not owners of what we've been given. We're merely stewards 
of it. We've been, here it is again, entrusted for a short window of time, a short period of time with that which we've been given, our stuff, our things, all of it, all of it is merely on loan to us. And and God is watching saying, can I trust you? How will you steward what you've been given? See, watch, when we have an ownership mentality concerning our money and our stuff and our things, then the temptation is to try and amass or store up, if you will, more things here on earth. That if we think it's, it's about us, then, then that will affect how we leverage, how we use what we've been given. Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. He, he says this, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, verse 20, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, Jesus is making it quite clear right here that when we spend our lives storing up for ourselves all this treasure here on earth, that the end result will just be that it rusts and decays. But Jesus is making it so clear right here that there is something greater going on with all of the stuff, all the money that we've been given. That that, that we're not just living in a here and now world. That there is a there and someday world called heaven. And Jesus says it's possible for us to steward our things now in such a way that it actually can impact our then and not just rust and decay. When I was in fifth grade, there was like a two or three year period, not that I was in fifth grade for two or three years, but just, you know what I mean? My buddy and I, we were just into baseball cards. I mean, we collected baseball cards and everybody at the time was saying, you know, man, if you've got the right baseball cards in the right condition, you'll be able to retire and help your grandkids retire. Like, you know, so my buddy and I, as little kids were like, all right. So I remember, man, there was a, a period of two or three years where we saved up all our money. And then, you know, we, every time we get so much money, we'd ride our bikes into town and when we'd ride our bikes into town, uh, we'd go to this little, you know, general store, whatever, and um, we would buy not just a few packs. We would buy like a whole box of baseball cards. And at the time, they came in a box of 36 packs. And so a pack was like 12 or 15 cards, a stick of gum, and then they would put it in like a wax packaging. They were called wax packs. And so my bu- I'll never forget, my buddy and I, we bought like 36 wax packs of cards, rode our bikes back to his house, and we had heard somewhere that they'll be worth more money in the future if they're unopened. So don't open the wax packs, but keep the best thing to do is, you know, for retirement <laughs> as a fifth grader, is to keep them in, in the box. So we did, like for whatever reason, we had the discipline to do it. Well, okay, fast forward. Uh, about 20, 25 years, whatever the number is. Uh, to a few years ago, when my parents retired and, and sold everything in Indiana and moved here to Southwest Florida. Uh, and when they got here, my dad shows up with this big container and he says, hey son, here's your baseball cards from your childhood. And I remember looking at my wife going, baby, we gonna retire, right? <laughs> right now. 
And I remember, you know, we opened them up, and I'm looking at all these baseball cards, you know, and I got to this box of wax packs. And, well, and, and here's the thing. 25 summers uh, in the attic, uh, uh, wax melts. Turns out, so does gum. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, I, I should have just opened them when I was a kid because at least it would have been fun. I mean, now they're just gooey. I mean, it was just, it, was just, it wasn't rust and moth, but it was wax. See, I was, I was trying to store up treasure somehow, and it didn't, it didn't work. And see, that's what Jesus is pointing to here. He's pointing to a mentality. A mentality and a question that I think we've got to wrestle with this weekend, which is, who does our stuff belong to? Notice Jesus never condemns any of our stuff. He doesn't condemn any of that. He simply asks us to ask ourselves the question, where are you storing your treasure? Who's stuff is it? What do we believe about our stuff? Why have we been given what we've been given? And see, I believe if we're going to thrive in this new economy that we're waking up to in our world today, then we've got to have a shift in our thinking about our stuff to not see ourselves any longer as owners, but mere stewards who've been entrusted with something for a short period of time to be leveraged however we can. For not for this world, but for the world to come. And then finally, number four, the final shift that I think has to take place at a heart level, at a belief level in our lives, if we're going to succeed and thrive in this new world of money, is this. Number four, we need a shift from misery to generosity. A shift from misery to generosity. Now, of course, I don't know what you're thinking. Some of you right now are like, bro, misery and generosity? Like, okay, when, when you think of the spectrum, you know, what's the opposite of generosity? Very few of us would be like, oh, I got it. I know. Me, me, me. Pick me, pick me. <laughs> misery. We wouldn't do that. Like, that's not the natural word, is it, to put on the other end of the extreme of generosity. But watch this. Let's play a game for a second. Okay, ready? Picture in your mind right now the most self-absorbed person that you can think of. Hopefully it's not your spouse. Think of the most self-absorbed person that you can think of right now. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's a coworker, an employee. Maybe it's a classmate, or maybe it's a family member, someone you know. Maybe it's a movie star or, you know, a a celebrity personality. Think of the most self-absorbed person right now that you can think of. Now, here's a question. Ready? With that person in your mind, are they happy or miserable? Happy or miserable? Now, let me ask you another question. Think in your mind of the most generous person you can. Think of the most generous person you can. Maybe it's a boss, coworker, family member. Maybe it's someone who's a connection group, you know, in your connection group or connection group leader, someone in the church, someone maybe in history that you can think of, dead or living. Think, okay, think of the most, most generous person you can right now. Happy or miserable. Happy or miserable? Watch this. Reality is so counterintuitive, isn't it? To what our culture wants us to believe today. 
See, our culture wants us to believe that the more self-absorbed we are, the more self-focused we are, the more into us we are, the happier we'll be. But the reality is, the more generous we are, the less focused on self we are, the happier and joy-filled we become. It's completely counterintuitive, isn't it? See, we live in a world, and maybe some of us who are listening today, you've bought into this lie. You've bought this myth unassumingly thinking, well, if I just give my kids everything I didn't have, if I just buy her everything she ever wanted, if I just can amass as much as I can, if I just can absorb us in us with all of the toys and all of the things and all of the stuff, that will be happy. And yet maybe just maybe you're listening right now and you're thinking to yourself, it's not working. My wanter keeps wanting. it's 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 a bucket with a hole in the bottom. I can't seem to fill it up fast enough. And the reason why is this. Because the more self-absorbed we are, the more miserable we become. But the more generous we are, the more joy-filled we become. Paul writes about it to Timothy, one of his spiritual sons in in the faith. And Timothy's pastoring this amazing influential church in Ephesus at the time. And Paul writes to him on how he should be pastoring the people that have come into his church the best. And Paul writes to Timothy and he says, command those, verse, Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world, which time out, real fast, pause. Let me define the word rich because right now so many times we can read stuff like that and go, yeah, that ain't me. I ain't rich. I wish I was rich, but I ain't rich. Okay, listen, by definition, here's what the word rich means. Ready? Having more than we need. Having more than we need. This is how I teach my kids. Are we rich? Yeah, we're rich. Because we have more than we need. Yeah, well, that's not me. I don't have more than I need. Do you have two pairs of shoes? More than one outfit? Then we're rich. Even the poorest person listening today is richer, according to this definition, than the vast majority of people on the planet. Because every one of us have more than we need. So Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, and judging by the last half decade or so, we would all say amen, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything, look at this phrase, for our enjoyment? Okay, time the heck out. What? What? Is that really in the Bible? That God provides us everything for our enjoyment? Really? God provides us with everything we have for our enjoyment. But then in verse 18, Paul finishes his statement and his thought by telling Timothy, here's how you should instruct rich people, people have more than they need, to get the maximum enjoyment out of what they have. Watch this, verse 18. Command them, the rich, those who have more than they need, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share 
And here's why, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves. Sounds familiar language, doesn't it, to what Jesus taught. They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation, where? For the coming age, and look at this, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul is writing to Timothy saying, command those who have more than they need in this present world. That if they want to have maximum enjoyment, if they want to be filled with joy, if they want to live the happiest life possible, then be rich in good deeds. Then don't just spend all of your excess on you. Don't just spend all of your excess on me and myself and I and what I want and my needs and my wants and my stuff. No, 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 no. Take some of that excess and invest it in the lives of others. Take some of that excess and invest it in the kingdom of God. Take some of that excess and invest it in that which will outlive you. For that is how you take hold of the life that is truly life, Paul said. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? To what our world teaches today about money. Because see, the more self-absorbed we are, the more miserable we become. But the more generous we are, the more joy-filled we become. See, Next Level Church, if we're going to thrive in this new world of money, then there has to be a shift that takes place at the heart level. What do we believe about our money, our stuff, our things? What do we believe about our compensation versus our calling? What do we believe about consumerism and contentment? What do we believe about our things? Do we believe that they're ours or do we believe that they're simply on loan to us for a season? What do we believe about generosity versus being self-absorbed? Here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray for a moment. And I just want to invite every single one of us to take the next couple of minutes and simply line our lives up in front of the word of God that we've just heard. And I want us to pray and just ask God, okay, Lord, in light of the truth that's just been presented to me, what changes do I need to make today concerning what I believe about my money? Can we pray together all across this room? Let's just bow our heads for a moment just to close out distractions. Father, thank you that you're here. Lord, we know that you're here. We know that your word is true. And God, right now, we just pause and we just simply lay our life in front of your word and say, God, you have permission to change us. God, you have permission to rearrange the beliefs that we have held true in our heart, perhaps forever. Jesus, we give you permission to help us to understand that the goal and and the end game of life is not just compensation, that it's about fulfilling a greater calling. Lord, we give you permission to change that belief today. God, we give you permission to change the belief today from consumerism to contentment. Lord, would you help us?
Give us the courage to lead our families well, to lead our kids well, to model this for the next generation. God, give us the courage to take a challenge and say, let's, let's just go on a spending freeze. Let's just wait. God, we give you permission to rearrange our thinking at a belief level about our stuff and our things and our money. God, would you help us as we, as, as we, as we digest this today, God, to, to truly leave this place in a few minutes thinking and knowing that we're not owners of anything. Rather, we're stewards. Father, we give you permission today to open up a heart of generosity within us that can change the world. Father, thank you that you've made us rich. You've given us more than we need. Father, may we begin to adopt a heart and a mindset of generosity that can change everything in our life. God, thank you. Thank you for bringing about a shift in us toward our money. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word that changes us from the inside out. God, we pray all of these things in the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. And everyone who agreed said,